Well, today we conclude our series on the uh, Psalms, which we've been engaged in all summer, for those of you who are here. Um, it's been a real blessing uh, for those of us who have been able to preach from the Psalms, and we've heard a lot of good feedback from you concerning how it's touched you, and um, we're happy for that. When we come to the end of the Psalms, um, last week I focused on the Songs of Ascent or Song of Ascents. The Songs of Ascent are the ones I conclude with today as well, focusing primarily on Psalm 128 to understand them a little bit more. <clears throat> but what I want to mention is something about pilgrims before we begin. Because these songs in the Psalter, called Song of Ascents, are songs for pilgrims. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of a pilgrim. Um, you may have uh, ideas of a, well, sort of a religious pilgrimage to a site that's intriguing to people. It seems like to me that when you think of people who visit sacred sites, there may be at least three types. Uh, one type that would visit a sacred site, and you might call it a pilgrim, would be really just a tourist. A person is kind of intrigued. They want to look at the religious artifacts. And they're enamored by them for whatever reason, whether it's the Sistine Chapel or St. Peter's. But there's another category of people, it seems, that make these trips that you might call pilgrimages. And they're what I would call the quasi-religious. They're the people who are not really deeply entrenched in their faith, but they're traveling there just to maybe get a little mystical blessing. If I just show up and do the right thing, maybe my life will get a little better. But there's some other pilgrims who frequent these sites who actually are demonstrating their devotion to God by going there. It's literally an extension of their walk with God, this journey to the site. And that's the way these songs were composed. They weren't composed for people who showed up at Jerusalem and then said to themselves, since we're here, let's sing some songs of praise about God. They were composed, apparently, and used in this way as pilgrims who sang them all the way along the journey. In other words, it was a reflection of what their life was. As they walked to the holy site, they reflected through songs about their life with God and with others. So the songs in the Psalter, called the Song of Ascents, are just that. And this particular one we end with, it focuses on the blessing of God that comes from those who follow God. And it begins like this. It begins by saying, that to be blessed, or the beginning of blessing, is to fear the Lord. Listen to the words again. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in His ways. Frequently, when commentators take a look at this passage and other passages that talk about fear of the Lord, they will interpret the phrase fear of the Lord this way. They'll say fear of the Lord means awe or reverence. And that's true. 
It does mean awe or reverence. But all too often, in my opinion, there's a period put at the end of the sentence. As if the psalmist just meant that. And what comes to mind is the kind of awe and reverence that we might have for an earthly king or an official of high honor or a person of character or an athlete. But really, there's more here than that. It's not just awe or reverence to be awestruck. I think, well, I think a helpful corrective is necessary. We need to expand it beyond just awe and reverence to the rest of the scripture. Because the rest of the scripture gives us another picture that's even beyond just awe. It's what I'll call holy terror. Three episodes I want to point to. One, the holy mountain. In Exodus chapter 20, do you remember the story? Moses gets the law of God, the very words of God, from God on a tablet. And you know what part of the surrounding atmosphere of that episode is? It's Mount Sinai where the tablets were delivered. And on Mount Sinai, the mountain literally quaked like an earthquake. And smoke and fire, lightning going from it. And you know what God told Moses to tell the people? He said, I want you to fear me. I want you to stand back. I don't want them to come near or to touch the mountain because they could die. That's more than awe. It's holy terror. And the people said to Moses on one occasion, this is so incredible. We're so terrified in the presence of this holy God, we can't approach the mountain, Moses. You do it for us. You be our mediator. Remember Jesus Christ? The mediator between God and man. First episode in Scripture is Holy Mountain that I want to emphasize. The second episode I want to emphasize in Scripture is the Holy Temple. Remember the time where Isaiah enters the temple and is commissioned for his ministry and in that temple he gets a vision of God and what happens when the vision of God comes? The whole temple quakes, the threshold, the doors, the pins, the hinges shake and he falls face down and he says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm ruined, I'm a dead man. I'm an unholy human being, and I'm standing in the presence of an awesome, holy God, and I live among the people of unclean lips, and I have unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. That's not just reverence. It's terror in the face of the holy God. Well, a holy mountain and a holy temple, how about a holy introduction? Remember how Jesus was introduced? Oh, he's a baby in a manger. Sweet and cuddly. Pink. I guess he smelled like a baby. I guess they didn't have baby oil back then. He was tiny. He was human. And what was the announcement? It was an announcement from angels to shepherds in the field. You know what the response was? Yay, God's here. 
No. It says they were terrified. The presence of the Holy God demonstrated by angelic messengers. And they too thought they were undone. So when we read passages like this, I think we need to step back from just the awe and reverence and remember the history of this revelation of God. It should grip our hearts and really put us in holy terror of an almighty, holy God. That doesn't mean that that God is not also intimate and the perfect mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. But God is holy. I want you, says the psalmist, to know this. If you want to be blessed, you will fear the Lord. You know what the second part of it is? He says, I want to tell you something else that's practical about fearing the Lord and blessing. Fearing the Lord and being blessed means you will walk in his ways. You won't just stand there in holy terror and shake. Anybody can do that. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel or the Epistle of James, James says, even the demons know that. They tremble. They know God. The psalmist says, you will be blessed if you fear the Lord and if you walk in his ways. The fear translated into obedience. As a matter of fact, according to the psalmist and really throughout scripture, the fear of God is inseparably linked from obedience to obedience. Remember the passage uh, Rob read at the beginning, if you were here early enough, that was only a third of you, but um, the very beginning of service. You read Psalm 1. Remember those words? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, because his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree planted by rivers of living water that bring forth fruit in his season. His leaf will not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. The psalmist in 128 says, Blessed are you who fear the Lord, and blessed are you who follow him. I think, maybe you don't, that it's rather... Ironic, odd, for the psalmist in Psalm 1 to say, the blessed man delights in the law of God. Okay, don't go all sanctimonious on me and say, Bob, you ought to understand that. I do, but you know what you do too, right? Think about delighting in law. You want to throw up your hand the last time you delighted in a law? You want to throw up your hand the last time you went cruising down I-65 like I did not long ago, breaking the speed limit? I wasn't delighting in that law. And I can tell you all other laws that I don't delight in on a daily basis. The first thing I think of when I think of law is not delight, right? Yes, of course. But the psalmist says he delights in the law of God. Why would he say such a curious thing? I think it's because the psalmist understands that the righteous man understands what the law is all about. Not that on every day he delights in the commands of God, but he understands what the commands of God are for. They're a safety net. They're a guide for life. 
They bring meaning to everything. And so he delights them. Last couple of weeks have been some of my favorite of the past four years, the Olympics. As you know, I just love sports. And every night I get to watch the Olympics. I'm getting a little tired of beach volleyball. Tired of that's over. But besides that, I, I really do delight in the games. And I was reminded um, about how delight in the law of God might be similar to delight in games. When I read this week, uh, and an author suggested that when the psalmist delighted in the law of God, it was like delighting in the rules of a perfectly well-played game. Do you ever think of a game without rules? A game that's played horribly, where all the rules are broken? There's delight in the confinement of the rules. The precision of the game adapts to the rules themselves. And pretty soon we hope that on the basketball court at IU, we'll see people step just that far back from the three-point line, just inside the room, and hit a three-pointer. There's great delight in the perfect approach to a game that is officiated well. The psalmist says, I delight in the law of the Lord. It gives me structure. It shows me how to live. And when I live within it, it produces joy. Well, the psalmist in 128 begins by telling us that the fear of the Lord is where blessing starts. And then, well, then he goes into verse 2 through 4 and says something else. He says that blessings produce prosperity. Listen to these words. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessing and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. So, this is a prosperity gospel, isn't it? Well, you know me better than that. I'm not big on the prosperity gospel. Because it's hijacked passages like this. And taken them in the wrong way. As a matter of fact, the way it's hijacked them, the prosperity gospel is here to suggest to you that the gospel and the blessings of God are like a contract for profit. That the blessings of God are based on an investment and you get a certain yield. That the blessings of God are really about material blessings, too. Dramatic material blessings. God just going to make you rich. I often wonder about the spokespersons that I speak about. If they've read certain passages like this one. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians. Oh, by the way, he was really blessed of God. Yeah, wouldn't you agree? He also had no kids. And he had no wife. He doesn't fit the paradigm. But he was blessed. So the statement about blessing is bigger than what we might first think. 
But I wonder if the people of the prosperity gospel have forgotten passages like this. Paul says, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of a procession like men condemned to die in an arena. We've been made a set spectacle to a whole world, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you, you're so wise. Love is sarcasm. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, we're in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. That's a blessed man. Why is he a blessed man? Because he's rich? No. Why? Because he's wealthy in lots of things, like wife and children? No. Why is he blessed? Because he has his center and his delight at the heart of the will of God. And in the midst of all of that, even in the midst of persecution and suffering, he realizes it is God who is telling his story and shaping him into the character of Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord. And he will inherit the eternal life that he cannot even imagine at this point. That's why Paul is blessed. So the image in scripture, this psalm, is not just about material blessings, though it is. It's not just about wives and husbands and children, though it is. It's about a larger, grander idea of the blessing of God. As a matter of fact, if you were going to explain what the blessing of God was in this culture, this description of family would have been the first thing you'd have used. Why? Because for the most part, these people lived in an agrarian society. Big families, that's great. Twelve or more, that's awesome. I'm trying to understand how that can be awesome. <laughs> right? You're with me. How many of you have twelve kids? I'm thinking it's time to celebrate in December because my second is graduating college. <laughs> Only two. That's a delight. But see, for them, it wasn't that way. The cost-benefit ratio was entirely different. The more children, the more blessing. The more children, the more people to invest in the family heritage. The more children, the more you can invest in the crops and grow them. The more children, the more you had leaders over all your community. The more children, you see the blessing of God in these children. It was a delight to them. And so the psalmist says, how can I explain to you what the blessing of God means? It's like having multiple children, lots of them. It's like a wife who's fruitful and productive. It's like children who are spread all over the community. It's a delight. That's how God's going to bless you. Now, having said something about large families and how I prefer not to have any large families, uh, I, I do want to make something clear. We diminish the importance of families nowadays. Um, we make jokes about not having too many kids because they're too expensive. We do our best to control everything. And sometimes, quite frankly, we don't invest in the rich blessing 
which is family. I remember my dad saying to me on multiple occasions, son, your first church is the family altar. Your family. You minister to them first. You invest in them. That's your true heritage. He did that for us. I try to do it for my children. It's incredibly important. The family unit is a sacred thing and a blessing from God. And if you allow your career or anything else to eclipse the importance of your role as father or mother in that family, you have started off wrong and you do not understand the rich first blessing of God. Now what's a contemporary parallel? Or should I say parallels? So we don't understand the blessing of 12 children. We just see them as mouths to feed. What is the rich blessing of God? Well, I think it is family. I think it does mean that God instructs us to invest in family, and when we invest in that family and train them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, it's not absolutely foolproof that they will all follow God. We know that. But it is likely that if you invest in those children, they will reproduce another generation that follows God. And the generation that follows you and even the generation that you raise is a network of incredible support of help. Never being alone. I um, have been through lots of family situations with people over the years in ministry. And the saddest ones are those who have family but they're not family. That's a rich blessing from God. So it really is something of a contemporary illustration of God's blessing. But there's more. This metaphor of the image of family and God's blessing could be expanded to a community, a larger community, like you, like the family of God. Like the way in which we share and support one another and share one another's burdens and we're never alone and we're beside one another or ought to be. That's a rich blessing from God. By the way, if you don't know that rich blessing, it's probably because you haven't been willing to make the investment. It's not easy, relationships, but they're available and they're rich. And they're a blessing from God. Because in those relationships, we conform ourselves to the image of Christ alongside one another. We challenge one another to follow the law of God. And in community, we share one another's burdens. We pray. The list goes on. What is the blessing of God beyond the nuclear family? It's also that personal promise from God that I'm going to supply all your needs according to the riches and glory which are in Christ Jesus our Lord. The blessing from God is the God that we serve is not a God who's a distant deity, but a God 
who has named himself our Heavenly Father. By the way, the church didn't make that one up. Nobody said, oh, here's a cool image. God has named himself. Among other names, he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just that distant deity. He is our father. And that God will never leave us or forsake us. And that God, if we align ourselves with his purposes, will make sense of all our joys and all of our sorrows, of all of our ups and downs. And that God promises to make in some perfect time everything new. That God invites us into a story, a story of grace. And that's an incredible blessing. The last part of the psalm really alludes more than anything else to blessings extended to others. It says, may the Lord bless you from Zion. That's big, overarching, huge. All the days of your life, more than just today or tomorrow, but all the days of your life. And may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. May the blessings that you experience overflow, and may the blessings that Jerusalem experiences overflow in you. May it exponentially be greater than it is just for you. Expanded blessing of God. And may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Though it's not so explicit in this psalm and so many other places in Scripture, it is explicit. The explicit nature of blessing in the scripture is that your children will be blessed because of you. I can't tell you, and I don't say this, um, I hope, in a braggadocious way, how grateful I am for my family heritage. My father and my mother, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law are both deeply devoted to Christ's Lord. They prayed a hedge of protection around us. They invested in us. They taught us the faith. And my rich heritage is this. I know it's not everyone's, but every single member of my family on my wife's side and my side is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And at any point, I could pick up the phone and tell them my need, and they would go to God in prayer. Every member of my family. That's an incredible blessing from God. I know it's not true for everyone. I'm so delighted that it is for me. 
your family, your children will be blessed because of you. I have the blessing of God on my life because of my mother and father. They set it up for me. They passed it on to me. But it's not just your family that will be blessed, it's your community. You'll bless your community, your community will bless you. Because grace, the grace of blessing expands. It goes places, or it ought to. Just like Jesus said, don't let your light be hidden under a bushel. Don't let your blessing stay there. Your blessing ought to spread out. It ought to affect everything in your, your community. Your Jerusalem ought to be blessed by you. And Jerusalem ought to bless you. It's a huge communal activity, this blessing of God. Your children, because of you, can bless your community. My wife's a principal. And I hear stories every day of terribly dysfunctional families. Children who don't have what they need for physical care or nourishment, emotionally, or even food. That's why there's free and reduced lunch, you know. I'm not making a political pitch. That's why breakfast is served in schools sometimes. Why? Because the institution understands that children that are nourished and well-fed are in a better position to learn. Do you see the image? Children that are nourished and well-fed, not just physically, but spiritually, and given support and encouragement, they bless their community, they bless their classroom, their teachers, their friends, you have an opportunity to change your world by blessing your children and passing it on to them and by blessing others. Even this week as you leave this place, if you allow the blessing of God to pour into your life and with gratitude leave with this attitude, you will bless others. How many times have you gone into a place of business and you've had a horrible day and one person has been kind to you? What difference has it made? You have an opportunity as the people of God to make that difference everywhere you go this week. Make Jerusalem blooming to be blessed because God has blessed you. This is a wonderful, wonderful promise. I want to conclude with just a couple of thoughts. The first one is this. It might seem like an odd term, but stay with me. I want to conclude by reminding you of how terribly sad a secular worldview is. Secular, that word, it comes from a Latin word which means this present age. Or to put it in a sentence, all of life is summarized, its meaning and everything else, by this present reality and nothing else. The Christian faith tells a different story. This present reality is defined by an invisible, eternal reality called the sovereign will of God. 
And that's incredibly hopeful. And incredibly sad for those who do not have it. I don't know if a number of years ago any of you watched the television series that was hosted by that brilliant scientist, Carl Sagan, who in that television program, while gazing into the incredible wonders of the universe, spoke these words, the cosmos is all that is, or was, forever will be. A couple of reactions you could have to that statement. One would be to debate it. Don't bother. At least not for this moment. Just see the overwhelming sadness of it. All there ever was, or ever will be. That's unspeakably sad. The Christian faith, in contrast to a secular worldview, which doesn't tap into the reality of the religious life that we understand in God, that Christian faith that is yours is a precious treasure. It gives you a meta-narrative. It gives you a story. It makes meaning of life, even the suffering of life. It's an incredible blessing. And God says, that's how I'm blessing you. I'm giving you everything. You can't even see it all. I got a plan. You can't imagine it all. I'm going to bring it to a conclusion, and you're part of the story. It's not all that is or was or ever has been here. It's way bigger than that. That's an amazing blessing from God. However, this is my second point. Even though we believe it, some of us don't act like it. I mean, seriously, if that's true, what kind of people would that make us? I mean, we'd be laughing all the time. People would wonder what was wrong with us. In the midst of suffering, we'd be rejoicing. Paul? It would be amazing if it really got deep into our bones. Because often it doesn't. We believe it here, but we don't let it affect our hearts. Um, an author named Ellen Glasgow, in her autobiography, wrote about her father, um, who was a Presbyterian elder, um, described him as a person of discipline, high-standing character, and very dutiful. She said, he was entirely unselfish, and in all his long life, he never committed one pleasure. Isn't that funny? Okay, you didn't get it. He was driven by duty. He followed the law of God. He didn't delight in it. He didn't look at the law of God and look at his life and say, Yeah! This is awesome! He never took that step. He couldn't experience joy. Look, I don't know Ellen's. Father, I don't know if that's true, but I know a lot of people who act like it. And some days it's me. Some days I'm dutiful. I'm sticking to the rules. And I'm not delighting in the law of God. Some days I'm not just shouting, yay God. But I ought to. Because that's the blessing of God that the psalmist says we'll receive when we fear him and follow him.
You know, um, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus' first miracle was a miracle where he went to a wedding party and turned water into wine. In other words, Jesus acknowledged that the inauguration of the kingdom of God could be summarized with these words. Let the party begin. God is good. Do you ever just delight in somebody who just rejoices well? That's one of the things I've loved about the Olympics. Um, in particular, can I tell you, the American women's relay team. Man, I don't know any of them, but I love those girls. <laughs> Not because they won, but because of who they are. I couldn't wait to see them run. Not to see whether or not they won, just to see them at the end. They were absolutely overwhelmed with joy. They were together. They prayed together. They gave thanks to God to be be there. Not because they were such strong runners. There was no pretense about them. They were utterly humble. They were delighting in the fact that God had given them the ability to run and to run fast. It was very, very enormous, well-deserved joy. And I loved watching it. Of course, there were other contrasts in the Olympics. Um, Usain Bolt, he's really good. Really fast. And he knows it. Or as Bob Costa said, um, I thought this was great. It's totally aside. He said, it's hard to have a higher regard for Usain Bolt than he has for himself. <laughs> <laughs> He's like Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest. <laughs> I, I didn't quite get as much joy out of him. I liked his running, but I got joy out of those girls who just ran with all their life and delighted in the gold medal or whatever the medal was. They just love life and they thank God for it. It seems like that ought to be us loving life and thanking God for it because he is good. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your grace in our life. Um, it's undeserved for sure. You shower us with blessings that, well, we certainly don't deserve, but things we couldn't even imagine. Lord, keep us from a sense of entitlement. Oh my, we, we could thank you for the blessings and then the blessings could turn into an attitude of entitlement and that's not what you want. You want us to be truly grateful for what you've done and to constantly give you thanks and praise and to spread that joy with others. May this week begin as a week of joy. May it extend throughout the week. May it redefine our lives so that wherever we are, we express gratitude for the great grace of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we'll thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.